0: Check, 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 check. Hello, 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 hello. That's better.
1: All right. So, Morgan, thanks for joining us here on the uh, Movember podcast.
0: It is, it is my pleasure. Mate, um... All right. See, that was so good, we're going to start it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Yeah, I'll fuck it up three times. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Welcome to the Movember podcast. I'm your host, Adam Garoni, one of the co-founders of the Movember Foundation. This show is dedicated to the real stories about dealing and sometimes not dealing with life's challenges, drawing out the tools and tips that can lead to a happier, healthier and longer life. Movember started as a conversation between my brother Trav and Luke Slattery, or Lucky as we know him. The aim back then, 14 years ago, was to grow real moustaches and to have real conversations about what's going on in your life. Over the last 14 years, I must have had thousands of conversations with men who have shared the most intimate of stories around their mental health and physical health. And and what I find is that men, um, it's not that we don't want to talk about what's going on, but oftentimes we just find it hard to bring up these tough topics. And that's been the beauty of Movember and Growing Mustache. It's this bridge that often leads to really important conversations And we're dedicating this season to conversations all about transitions. We'll talk about the biggest changes that we go through in life. Becoming an adult, becoming a parent, marriage, divorce, career changes, retirement, losing someone close to you, facing and healing from a mental or physical illness. For this first episode, I sat down with someone very familiar to transition and at times taking it to extreme levels. So is there any difference between the Morgan Spurlock we see in the movies and you in personal private
0: life? Sadly, not much. (laughs) There's not a lot of mystery. You know, I think that, uh, no, I think that I, and for me, that's part of what I try to, that's why I try to be as open and and honest in the things that I make, because I want, I want it to be as real as possible. Mm. So it's not like I'm really holding anything back as to who I am. Um, I will hold back a lot of like real opinions about things because I don't really want to tell you what to think in most of the stuff I make. Like, for me, it's much more important for, for me to kind of help, like, help push you how to think rather than what to think. Like, I want you to kind of generate your own opinion about whatever we're talking about. And whether I agree with it or not, have an opinion. You know, come to a point where here's what I believe. And it still may not be what I believe, but at least it's I think it's, uh, it's better to stand for something and stand for nothing. Filmmaker Morgan Spurlock became
1: famous as he underwent a massive transition, eating McDonald's every day, three meals a day, for an entire month, for his Oscar-nominated 2004 documentary, Supersize Me.
0: I think I'm going to have to go supersize. It's hard for me to watch him go through this. It seems like you're starting to get addicted to it now.
1: You saw these numbers, Right. These numbers are outrageous.
0: Unfortunately, you caused some
1: major harm to your heart, your liver, your blood.
0: You're going to die. You'll die. I want more. More, more, more. You've got to stop it.
1: And since then, Morgan's continued to tackle big problems and ask big questions in his TV series 30 Days and movies like The Greatest Movie Ever Sold. I met Morgan during the filming of his documentary Manson, where Will Arnett and Jason Bateman search for the secrets to men's beauty and ideas of masculinity.
0: What do you think makes a man... I wish I had your manly voice. Oh, come on, Jason. No, you just went, you're going lower there, you know. No, I'm
1: not. He was in between premiering his new film, Super Size Me 2, and launching his new podcast. And we met near his office to catch
0: up. i tell you the story of the mustache, of how I won the mustache. and Because it, it really was, it was a bet. <laughs> oh, and you lost. And I, well, I, and I won. See, so <laughs> you I, have, yeah, I, yeah. I had a show. Do you say, don't make fun of it. Because it's, <laughs> it's mine, and, I'm, and, it's, uh, and now it's like a part of me. So I was doing a show called I Bet You Will, Which was a show that we created on the internet back in 2000, and then we sold it off to TV. And everybody who was on the show, um, we we all pulled our money, and we said, during the six weeks, whoever can grow the best porn star mustache will win the pool. But the guy who won had this spectacular pencil-thin, almost Clark Gable. It's it's hard to wear that. It's hard to wear, but it was a very dirty-looking mustache. Like There was nothing quite as porn-tastic as what that mustache was. And so while I lost the bet, while he won all the money, um, I won the mustache. Because once I grew it out, I was like, I kind of like it. I I think I'm going to keep it. And yeah. so I've had it ever since. I find it's a good bullshit filter. Like
1: people yeah. sort of, you know, often people just look at you and you're a weirdo and, and you just keep going, <laughs> which is oftentimes a really good filter, right? Yeah. But you did a documentary around, you know, uh, the relationship between grooming and masculinity. Yes, called Mansum. Yes. That's yes. how we met. It was. It was. Yeah. Uh, I think I was the only person on that documentary that you didn't take the full piss out
0: of. <laughs> If you've never seen this film, you should see it. It's a fun movie. Um, But it's all about the world of manscaping and kind of what that means. And the film came to us, and it's one of those where it's like, it wasn't like I was lying in bed pining to make a movie about (laughs) manscaping, but my friend Ben Silverman, um, who we produced a lot of stuff with over the years, he was the former president of NBC, had a company called Electus, and I did the TV show 30 Days with him years ago. He said, um, I was with Will Arnett and Jason Bateman, and they want to do a movie about manscaping, do you want to meet with them? And the only answer to that question is, of course course I do. Of course I want to meet with them. All they do is take the piss out of each other nonstop. Like when you see them in the film... It's an amazing dynamic. It's an amazing dynamic, but that's how they are all the time. And after that was over, I was like, the only answer is yes. Like we have to make this movie because it'll be so much fun. And you know, we got Paul Rudd in the film and Zach Galifianakis. I mean, it was a really fun movie. Yeah. How have
1: you seen um, masculinity evolve over the years from, from the image of your dad
0: to you now as a father and even how are you bringing up your boys I, I think the the biggest thing and it's kind of how I I try to live my life it's like I very much I feel very masculine in my existence I feel I you know I feel but I also feel very in touch with my emotions I feel empathy I feel like there's nothing more masculine than empathy there's nothing there's nothing stronger than being able to be in touch and understand how other people feel and what they're going through so in whatever I've done and what I try and do instill into my children is just as my mother instilled into me is this idea of caring for others as much as you care for yourself? You need to care for other people, and and it doesn't even need to be people that are that you know in your life. Um, helping someone on the street, talking to someone you've never seen, giving someone directions. It's I I try to be open to to everyone, um, and try not to judge them, and try not to put them into a box, which is easy to do. I think in today's world, especially in kind of this mm-hmm. this so segmented country that we're in right now where it's like this side versus this side. Yeah, we are living in an interesting time um, and
1: it's it's polarizing at the moment yeah. in the U.S. and I, I can only imagine it. It's, you know, from L.A. to here, the, you know, it, it must be tough to like still focus on that when, you know, we have some, in theory, role models saying yeah. other things.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest thing is you can still be, you can still be a man and stand up for what you believe in and not be so confrontational and not have everything have to be a fight. Um, I, I mean, the, the, the some of the strongest men, I think, in the world are the ones who never get into confrontation, are the ones who are able to have have a real conversation with you and get to a greater position of understanding. And that's ultimately how I want to live my life and hopefully my sons as well. But still, you, you still shouldn't walk away from a fight if you have to. <laughs> <laughs> So in the
1: early years of you establishing your production company, I read that, you know, there was a time when you were, um, you know, running the homeless. payroll, I was homeless oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, uh, paying people off of credit cards yes. and racked up, you know, $250,000 worth of debt. I mean, yeah. what was driving you at that point? Was it just to make it? Or was it to create change
0: or, you know, fame and success? What it was, was, I mean, it was none of that. I mean, I feel like I was starting a business. I was starting a company. And at the time I was Thirty, you know, thirty-one had no kids yet. Um, so the ability, the, like the idea of me taking risks, it was like, who cares? You know, it's what's worst. Outcome? What's what's worse? Mm-hmm. What's the worst outcome? I declare bankruptcy. That's the worst that's going to come for, come out of this. Is I'll have to declare bankruptcy. Um, I said, but I think that if we can just stay the course, you know, we can we can make something come out of this. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, people quit. There were people that were like, this is no going nowhere, and they walked out of the company while we were doing it. I got evicted from my apartment. I was sleeping in a hammock in my office. And I was I had great credit. So I was taking out credit cards to basically pay bills <laughs> right. to pay credit cards to pay, first to pay to pay bills, to pay employees, to pay their rent. And then when you start using credit cards to pay for credit cards is when shit gets bad. <laughs> That's when shit gets real. Because then like the your, whatever your interest rate is like flips up to like 20 some percent, right. like it gets crazy. Okay. And so, yeah, I amassed about a quarter of a million dollars in credit card debt in you know, just over a year. But I was like. I still got to, you know, because I would go to work every day. I wouldn't even go to work because I, w- I was waking up in my office. My brother sent me the hammock that was in his backyard in West Virginia so I could string it up between the two. Oh, so you didn't even buy the hammock. I didn't like... buy the hammock because I, I couldn't afford it. So I said to my brother, I said, can you send me your hammock? And so he sent me the hammock that was in their backyard that I hung up. I would hang it up every night with chains in between two beams in the middle of my office. And that's what I slept in. Um, and then every morning I would wake up go around the corner to the to the gym where I would take a shower so I was very fit because I had to go to the gym every day to actually take a shower <laughs> um, but then I would come back and I'd be at the office and I was like I still got an office I may not have a home but I still got an office and for me I, I was for me it was like I still had something I still had this thing that mattered and it wasn't like we were chasing I wasn't chasing fame I wasn't chasing I guess you you could say you're chasing success because you don't want to quit. And, you know, for me, the one thing that I never saw my father do in all those years of starting a business or selling a business or closing a business is I never saw him quit. And so for me, I was like, I'm going to see this through to the end, whatever that end is yeah every entrepreneurial story um has this
1: phase yeah. of um taking extreme risks and i remember with Movember in the very early years it was this it was year 3 when we were you know going from volunteering our times to you know, making this a, a real thing. I think it was two thousand and six. We we convinced all our suppliers yeah. to to invoice us in December. So we were pulling favors left, right, and centre. Coming in late September, early October, we we'd amassed seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of bills. Bet. Yeah. Wow. And so if November that year didn't happen or didn't go well, we were screwed. Yeah. And thankfully, we went on to raise like, I don't know, it was $8 million that Incredible. year. And, and that just set us on the path. But it was sort of, it was part naivety, like just sort of ignoring- <laughs>
0: Ignoring the facts. The, the reality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of
1: this truck that's <laughs> coming towards you. Um, but more so this belief yeah. in what you're doing that's and right.
0: these little hints of, all right, I know this can work. So yeah. that that persistence is- is key, isn't it? And how many of those people, it's, I think it's so important, how many of those people that were there walked away as the bills were piling up who were like, this isn't going anywhere, this is a terrible idea? And how many stayed? Uh,
1: we didn't have too many walk away. I mean, it was my brother and two mates and, yeah. and a couple other people, so we were pretty tight. We were okay. sort of, we're all in it. It's right. like, if you walk, we're, we're absolutely screwed. <laughs> That's right. You're not allowed <laughs> to, actually. Yeah. Yeah. You're a great storyteller. Where, where did that inspiration come from, and when did it start?
0: Well, my mother would say when I started lying to her as a much younger child. <laughs> but I think it—I came—I come from a family of storytellers. Like my my mother was always uh, telling stories. She was always writing short stories. She was always telling us stories. My grandparents were great storytellers. So it's like it's just—I don't know—I feel like in West Virginia, and it was just—it was just something that was very inherent to our family that you would sit down and. People would tell stories. Yeah. You're also really good at finding weird shit um, <laughs> to talk about. Like, where did that inquisitive <laughs> nature come from? Um, that's a great question. I think probably from again, probably from my mom. Like, uh, I got two. I got two extremely very different traits from my parents. Like, my father, who is a He's an awesome guy, lifetime entrepreneur. Um, like throughout my whole childhood, I would see him starting businesses and he'd sell one and or he'd start one and it would fail and he'd shut it down. He'd start a new one. But I never saw my father quit. But uh, but my mother was like was always the person who encouraged us to ask questions. Like, why is this happening? Like, why, why do you believe that? I,
1: I read that and you quoted your mom as saying. Every silver lining has a cloud behind it.
0: Yeah, my mother, my mother is a... <laughs> so, both, tell both, me about that. Both my mother and my aunt are... Uh, they, they, they're, they're the daughters of Depression-era parents, you know, where, you know, you have to work hard for everything. Nothing's easy. And no matter how good things are, well, they're not that good. Trust me, this may be good, it may be good now, but it's going to fall, fall apart soon enough. So get ready. So get ready. You,
1: you've also done a great job of using humor... Mm-hmm. through um, storytelling, often around sort of quite serious things and, and using humor to, to influence and, and change stuff. Yeah. Where, where did
0: that come from
1: and, and how important is that in, in your storytelling?
0: Yeah, that, that 100% came from my mom. You know, she she has a great sense of humor, always did. She and I, like, she raised me on a fine diet of British comedy like re- growing up we were watching we'd watch Monty Python mm. um and the young ones and black adder and forty oh, Towers. Love all the young ones oh so yeah. good yeah. and so she and i just were giddy watching these shows a couple of years ago i got to take her to the monty python reunion show in london when wow. at, at the o2 like that just as like her birthday present it was one of the most i was so proud that i got to do that with her because this the, the, those moments that i spent with her in my childhood were so formative for me mm. and really kind of helped me understand one, who I was as somebody who looked at the world, you know, that helped me understand that through, through things that are funny. And it's a, it's a whole idea that we have at my production company, which is essentially, if you can make someone laugh, you can make someone listen. Mm. And all of those comedy shows did a great job of dealing with really serious topics in a way that you laughed at. So often in, in your storytelling, you're the,
1: the central character. Yeah. And do you prefer being, uh, on the camera or behind the camera?
0: Um, I mean, I like both I, and I understand the value of both. Like when like we just finished a new film, which I'm on camera again, and like those journeys I think are awesome. Like I think for me to be able to take you on this journey, this vicarious journey, where when I learn something, you learn something. When I see something, you see it. When I feel it, you feel it. Like those are, there's a great trade-off in those moments and a trust that you have in me and me and you as we kind of go on that journey together. But I also love making movies where I don't have to do that because then I don't ever have to worry about how... How 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 good looking can I make this ugly mug yeah, every that, day? that, that like, mustache. Yeah, how trimmed? How, do I have to trim this stash for my face? Do I actually have to shave today? Do I have to wear a shirt that actually yeah. looks pressed? Yeah, you know, like yeah. I, I don't go quite as long as you, mate, because it's <laughs> like it's so grey down there now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so like for me, it's like the like when I'm behind the camera, it's great because I can look as shitty as I want. You know, and it's, <laughs> it's and the it's,
1: beauty of podcast. That's right, the right, right.
0: We are so filthy right now. Yeah, we I are look, gross. We're disgusting. Look, look like absolute shit. <laughs> Let's
1: talk a little bit about Supersize me, so that was a huge cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Um, you were
0: nominated for an Oscar. so how did you deal with the fame that came with that? There was a moment when I was at Sundance in two thousand and four with Supersize Me about we're about halfway through the week, and James Rocky, um, who is a journalist a, a film critic. Came up to me in the middle of Sundance, and he said, "So, Mr. Spurlock, how does it feel?" And I was like, "What are you What are you talking about?" He said, "You're the belle of the ball. This is your Sundance." And I get, I, I'm getting chills literally again as I'm telling you this story because it's the, it's that moment where I took a step back and I was like, "Holy shit!" He like, I'm Cinderella. I'm the guy who's going to come out of this festival. My life's never going to be the same, and it wasn't. And it was, it was completely. It was one of those where I was very fortunate to be surrounded by great people who kind of kept my head straight and um, from friends who I'd been working with for years, just like you did, you know, when we started the company, to family members, to, you know, people that kind of came onto my team to help put the movie out. I was surrounded by real people. I wasn't surrounded by any kind of what you would imagine like typical douchebaggery Hollywood types, I was really lucky. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, it could have it could have ended very badly, but I think I think I was again. I give a lot of credit to my parents and my family. You know, who kind of made me realize that you know what, this could all go away. This is all great. It's but that this, cloud. Behind yeah, it's the... That, uh, there's the cloud behind the silver lining. This is good. You should enjoy it, but it's all gonna. It could all go away tomorrow.
1: And I've always thought about this. It, it, it's about enjoying the journey. Yeah, because you do get transfixed on like the destination on on that time than when you hit success that's right and, and when that those moments come and go pretty quick agreed and and enjoying the
0: process as hard as it is yeah well that's i remember some of the best advice i ever got was from dennis miller the comedian and this was right when supersize me was exploding and it is just coming out in theaters and i was doing the rounds of like the talk show circuits and tv shows and i was on his tv show and we went to commercial break and he was congratulating me on the film and, you know, however, how, you know, on everything has happened. And he said, he goes, I just wanted to give you some advice. Enjoy this. He goes, enjoy everything that's happening right now. He goes, because the elevator up only happens once. And it's one of those things where to this day, I'm still incredibly thankful and grateful with everything. And, you know, the whole ride, the whole journey, you know, you can't, you can't just you can't just beat yourself up all the time. And if you don't take time to enjoy it, then you're just going to be this bitter, old, angry. You know? And I see these people. I see, I've had them in my lives, these bitter, old, angry people who all they do is work and there's no fun in their lives. And so I try to find the fun in everything. Like we have a fun office. I have fun with my family. You have to like enjoy those, those worlds or else what's the point? What part of the journey did you enjoy the most? I, I, I'm still enjoying it. Like I'm still like it's still it's still great for me. The most exciting thing is what can we do now? Like I I love the what's next. Like I love the stuff we've done, um, and I loved every I loved everything that I've gotten to be a part of up till now. But it's, for me, it's like what's still to come. Like what's still to come as my. Oldest son becomes a teenager. What's still to come as like my new my, my baby boy learns how to talk. What's still to come in the movies that we're getting to make, and as this new movie is getting ready to come out, um, I mean, it's all it's it's. I revel in
1: all of it. You know, certainly with Movember and, and the brand going where it did, there was nothing. There's nothing like working with your brother to call bullshit on you <laughs> like mate you've been a dickhead that's right <laughs> well,
0: yeah that's why so, right. my, bro- my brother works with me now here in New York he moved up from West Virginia so now right. he works at our company so yeah it's great having somebody there who's like stop being stop being a shithead yeah <laughs> <laughs> um What? Well-
1: many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news,
1: be in an audience and and have them you know be there and they're experiencing
0: and watching Super Size Me for the first oh, time. It was amazing. So to be in that audience and kind of see this crowd laughing at things that we thought were funny, um kind of ooing and awing at things that we thought were important and mattered and just kind of see the the response afterwards was I don't know, it was really it was it was like after cuz you got to think this was now after years of living and sleeping in a hammock and now, you know, moving into an apartment with my girlfriend and, you know, feeling like, well, this is it, you know, it was so exciting when we got into Sundance and now here we are premiering the movie and you f- it felt so gratifying, um, you know, just like when you guys did your $8 million run, you know, suddenly that year, like, oh my God, this is something, this yeah. is real. Like when we had the film there and that premiere happened, it was like, this is real. Yeah. yeah. So from eating all that shit for 30 days, yeah. <laughs> were, were, were there any long-term sort of health effects, like mentally and physically? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, the biggest ones, well, mentally, not long term, like like the short term effects were really dramatic, you know, in terms of how it affected like my blood pressure, my cholesterol level, my liver function, my mood, um, you know, my sexual dysfunction, you know, all the stuff that came from this terrible food, um, which all, all was all was, you know, made right after about eight weeks after an eight week, you know, cleanup period. And then but the one thing that stuck around, which to this day, my body, I think, is still affected by this is gaining weight. So, like, after that, like, I could, I, after I lost all the weight, I could go out and, like, have a great binge weekend where it's just, like, I'm having pizza and pancakes and drinking beer, whatever it is, and I could put on 10 pounds like that, like, oh. over the course of a weekend.
1: So, we, with the success um, of Super Size Me yeah. and, and you're living that, did you then feel a weight of expectation around your next production?
0: Totally. Yeah, re- very much. And I think that um, the best thing, the best decision we made um, and the best decision I think that I made out of that was we got the idea for Thirty Days, which was the TV show we sold to FX, and we sold that show right out of Sundance. Like I went from selling our movie at Sundance to LA to sell kind of the spinoff of that film as a TV series. And so then the the for me it was a it was a smart show. This was this was right at the beginning of reality TV, and so here was a show that actually dealt with reality. It dealt with immigration. It dealt with living on minimum wage. It dealt with um, uh, homosexuality. Um, gay Marriage. I mean, it was a powerful show at a time when shows weren't really talking about this. Reality shows weren't really talking about this. What production are you most proud of? I mean, that show, the, the sheer volume of things we got to tackle over three seasons was amazing. From, you know, like, not that I enjoyed going to prison for 30 days, but being able to tell a story about going to prison was great. Um, about what it means, you know, to, you know, what the coal industry is all about as I became a coal miner for a month. Um, as I lived on the Navajo reservation and talked about kind of the plight of Native Americans in our country, you know, it's, I, I think that we got to dive into things that were hard for other people to push through at networks that we were able to kind of put in. Mm. Did you ever feel as though you were part of the Hollywood entertainment scene? And, and that's what, see, that's why I live in New York, so that's right. See, <laughs> as far away as, as you far, can. As see, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan. Like, if I whenever even still to this day when I go to L.A., which you still have to for meetings and pitches and, and potentially fundraising, whatever it may be. Um, so, I don't know. For me, I still feel... I still feel very fringy. I still feel like I'm very much on the fringe um, with what we do and 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 what the stories that I tell and what I'm about. And I think that's kind of where I want to be. You know, I just I want to be that. I want to be the cloud around the silver lining. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I live in LA and um, been there
1: ten years now. Mm-hmm. And certainly back then, it was literally a one industry town. Now, with yeah. you know the, the the tech and entrepreneur scene is is it's diversifying, huge. which is. Wonderful. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so you're either in the entertainment industry if you lived in L.A. or you wanted to be. Yeah. And I was this weird Australian dude trying to get everyone to grow <laughs> moustaches. And it's like, what is that
0: idiot doing? <laughs> um, so they're like, oh, yeah, that's that sounds like a business. All right. See you later. <laughs> good, See, luck that, good, good luck with that, man. Good luck with that. See, the thing I found about it with L.A. is that the key to really being in L.A. is you need to have, like, a core support group of friends mm. to be in that town. I, I mean, I am lucky to have like these great college friends that are like real, real human beings, Mm. you know, that are there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So how, how has the
1: concept of success and being successful changed from, you know, your time in your thirties to, to
0: now? Now people return my phone calls. It's the best. <laughs> you know when you reach when you reach the point where people call you back is the greatest day ever when uh, when you can like get someone no matter who it is, and they'll actually return the call and like good things will come out of it. for me, that's that's the greatest part of of what success mm. is and can be is that now anything's possible. And I've reached a point where I can make just about anything I want. I can tell just about any story I want. I can do almost anything. So now you have to be really smart and selective because now the greatest, the most valuable commodity I have now is time. Right. And like, how do I manage that the most efficiently, the most effectively so that I get to spend time with my kids? So I get to build my business. I get to do the things that I find to be the most emotionally um, and personally valuable from a creative standpoint. I don't chase the idea of, oh, my gosh, look, there's a there's a plastic surgery show on TV. Where's our plastic surgery show? It's like that's not the way we run our company. You know, for me, I'm very much about the things that we're excited about and that uh, that we think are, are important, important stories to tell.
1: How has your approach to relationships
0: changed um, with age and experience? I've recognized how much more important family is, and time with them, and my friends. Like it's, I think you realize how important it is to be a better friend, and uh, and that's something I strive with every day. Because as a workaholic as a workaholic, you get distracted. I get distracted by all the stuff I feel like I have to do at work, rather than all the stuff I need to, do to kind of feed my soul and my spirit as a as a friend, as a brother, as a family member. So. If you had a buddy come up to you and say, hey, I, I
1: love my kids, I, I love my family, but marriage is on the rocks, so I yeah. think we're going to break up, what,
0: what would your advice be? It's, it's, that's a great, it's a great question because I, I got divorced a couple years ago. Um, and, you know, it's been one of those things that I think it was the best thing that could have happened for us um, and was the right thing to happen. But I tell my friends, and I've had a few different friends who've asked me since then, and I say, you should try to work it out. Like You should you should go to therapy. You should spend time with each other. You should make your relationship a priority. And I've had a lot of friends who've made it work, Who's you know said, you're right, I should try to stick this out. Um, and other ones who who ended up getting divorced. Um, I mean, the it's emotionally taxing um, on you and your family. I mean, the one upside is my son has no recollection of us kind of being together like we separated before he was two years old. So all he kind of really remembers is like mom's house and dad's house. Um, you know, I'm remarried, she's remarried. So he has two complete families that love him to death. So now he gets four Christmases, so he's ecstatic. He's pretty good. <laughs> he's pretty good. He's doing pretty good. But I think that um you know the biggest thing is I think if you can if you can find a way to kind of give up whatever that was, make a sacrifice that will kind of find middle ground in that relationship. It's always worth trying, and it doesn't always work, but it's it, you're better off trying than not. And uh, and I think personally, you'll f- at least feel like you went the extra mile. Yeah. So your first wife, Alex, she was in super size, uh, yeah. super me with you. Did yeah. did that impact
1: like working with with your partner like that? Did that impact
0: the, our relationship? Yeah. I mean, I think that. Um, I think with us it was partly, you know, I because I, as as I told you, as a workaholic, like I was gone a lot, like I traveled a lot, I shot a lot, I was I was continuing to try and build my business, and I never made my relationship a priority. I never made she and I a priority, and like we were very close, but I never made kind of us being a couple a real important part of our life. And by the time it kind of came around, um, it was too late. I think,
1: yeah. So, um, what have you taken from that experience into
0: to your next marriage? I mean, for me it's about taking time to, you know, kind of listen to that other person, spend time with that other person to prioritize those moments that you spend together, to shut the phone off, to like, you know, actually have some um moments of intimacy that don't have to be sexual intimacy, but it can just be just a conversational intimacy you know, where you're actually having dinner, talking to one another, not in front of the television, watching Game of Thrones, which I love to do. But it's (laughs) like, but, you know, sometimes it's nice just to have dinner and have a a real honest end of day. Look at me, look at you, looking at you, looking at me, let's talk. And here's what's going on. Those are great. Like, and we we do that a lot when all of our families together, like when both my boys are there and we're there. But with just the two of us doing it, we kind of started to let it go and we realized that we needed to kind of circle back and make that important again.
1: Do do you remember with Sarah, your your wife now, the first really meaningful conversation where it's like, all right, this is serious.
0: Yeah. It was when I was still married. That's, uh, that's how this all kind of transpired. So it was in the middle of that where she and I started talking and, um, we really hit it off. We really, we really cared for each other. And, and it was one of those where I realized there was something, there was really something special about what she and I had. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so with Presley, my daughter, um, you know, I travel a fair bit with work. I, I'm trying not to travel as much so I can be home more. You, you still travel a lot. Like, yeah. how how do you? Um, what do you do? Like, practically to stay connected and
0: and well, I mean the 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 best thing. I mean, the greatest thing that ever happened is FaceTime. I mean, the mm-hmm. fact that I can actually like look at my kid now and he can see dad. Um, you know, both my boys, the fact that I can FaceTime with them and they can see me, that I can call them and talk to them, actually have a bit of an emotional connection with them. Even though it's not a physical connection, I think it makes a big difference versus just being on the phone because when you're on the phone with somebody, as we all know, you can be not paying attention 75% of the time and be distracted by other things or whatever's going on, whether it's laundry or TV or computer or anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah I- <clears throat> FaceTime with Presley and it's like
0: what she loves to do though is press the red button and and make it that's, yeah that's my what are you doing Presley yeah. Jesus <laughs> yeah my youngest my, my son Callan that's all he does so he takes the phone and he runs away with it and then he presses the red button because it's a big red button that's what you're supposed to do the big red button you hit it and you know you launch the missiles or you turn off daddy those are the two choices but the, the other thing is is then I you know for me it's about quality not quantity so if I can't have the quantity where I'm with my kids all the time then the time that I am with them I want to make really valuable. So it's about unplugging. It's about making them the focus. It's about doing things that they love. It's about finding things we can do together. Um, that's, for me, that's the most important part. Mm. So let's talk about
1: your relationship with your, your sort of close buddies. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you talk a lot and you're very open in, in front of the camera about serious issues. Are you as open with you, with your close buddies around, you know, what's going on with fatherhood or
0: marriage or relationships or work? Completely. I think you, you have to have somebody that you can vent to. It's really important. Yeah. Um, I think you need to have a partner you can vent to. And then I think you need to have some other people that you can vent to on the side. Because you know, my grandmother, because it's like I love my wife, but there's still things I won't talk to my wife about. <laughs> I will tell her almost everything. But there's still things I want to talk to my friends about that I won't talk to her about. Um, because it's just I think it's 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 just inherent to who I am and I think who guys are. And so like me and my guy friends will have guy conversations about things that are important to me Um and then I talk to her about like the other ninety five percent.
1: Yeah, and what I, what I find with my mates and buddies is um it's really important to have the right
0: environment yeah. to have those conversations. Yeah, there is usually a pint involved. You know, we're usually uh we're usually you know sitting at a bar somewhere having a pint. One of my one of my oldest friends, uh, Dave Stacy, who he and I have known each other since we were five years old. Um, like he and I, we travel together, our families travel together, and so he and I will just like you know find time wherever we are just to like. Check in, talk. We'll call each other all the time. Um, those friends are invaluable.
1: As a father, how are you similar to your dad, and and also
0: different? Mm. I'm a workaholic, much like my father, um, which my father likes very much. My father, my father, my father loves that I have a business that uh, that I work for myself. He's very. I think he he's never openly said that he's proud of that, but I think he likes that i that I work for myself. Um, he. Uh, I think that the other I'd say the difference is I've tried to be much more present in my kids lives than I think my father was in mine. Um, my father would leave at six in the morning. I'd see him at nine o'clock at night. He would work on weekends like I never really spent time with him. And for me, you know, it's one of those things like once I had kids and now I've got two boys, you know, it's it's really important for me to have a different bond with them than I had with my dad. Like I'm much closer to my father now as an adult than I ever was as a kid and i wanted to try and you know kind of flip that a bit
1: yeah our dad's probably the same age and 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 that generation of men it was just it was you know
0: i love my dad but it wasn't but I, it wasn't in your dna
1: no no and and yeah the the there wasn't sort of a deep emotional connection per yeah. se it was more
0: you know i knew he loved me for sure and he was there for me but it yeah. was it was different yeah and my dad is an emotional guy. Like, uh, like I've caught my dad. Like, my dad will cry over things. Like, you know, he, you know, he's a hugger. Mm. So it's like, so he is an emotional guy. But it's one of the things where I feel like that came later for him. And I feel like part of with my dad, I think my dad wanted, my dad wanted young men, not boys. Like he wanted, he wanted us to grow up. And I think for him, it was much easier to relate to us as adults than it was to relate to us as kids. Yeah, yeah. How did becoming a, a dad the first time change you? It, it it really it reinforces your mortality immediately, because um, usually up till then, up until you have that kid, you're you're impenetrable. Nothing will touch you. Nothing can stop you. No, nothing will harm you as a man, I think. And then the minute you have that kid, this thing becomes the most important person on the planet. You know, this is finally something uh, finally something exceeds your own ego to kind of to make you realize this is what matters most. And, you know, I, I probably wouldn't put myself in the middle of terrible things as I used to. Like, I remember when my son was being born and I was calling his mom from Afghanistan when we were shooting Where in the World's Osama bin Laden. And like we had been in the middle of like a Taliban ambush and they, you know, they shot the guy that was on a bike trying to get away. And it's like, I can't tell my wife this is she's home pregnant with my kid. It's like I can't tell her any of this. Um, but when I look back now. I, now that I have two kids, two boys, I wouldn't put myself in those situations now. I will, I will have much more of a measured risk in terms of the choices I take. And I think it, it does. It makes you, it makes you appreciate a lot. Of, one, one, it makes me appreciate the life I have. It makes me appreciate the family, father, parents that I had. And it also makes you want to be a better person. Like my kids make me want to be a better father, a better husband, a better man.
1: Mm. So, how old is your first son?
0: Uh, he's ten. Oh nice. Yeah, so it's good cuz there's zero competition between them cuz he's like yeah. he's like proper big brother. Yeah, yeah, nice. And he loves he loves being a big brother now. It's like when when we were first talking about having a kid, he's like uh he goes, I don't want a little brother or little sister. Because I want a big brother. And I was like, "Daddy can't help you with that, buddy." <laughs> yeah. I, was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Unless somebody magically you, shows up from right. Daddy's past." <laughs> then, you know, yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Then, then you're going to be on your own. <laughs> as far as you know, there's not That's a big right. brother That's out far, there. As far as I know, <laughs> you're you're it, pal. Yeah,
1: yeah. And and do do you think about the um as as a dad? Do you think about the Expectations that your sons will have about sort of emulating your success and and how do you sort of um, manage those expectations
0: i think the the greatest thing is to make sure i'm, I'm both my boys the The fifteen month old listen he's he's still you know crapping in his pants he's not he's not a, a long very, way to he's, go he's got a long way to go but but my older son, the most important thing for me is for him to have a real sense of self so that it's not in a shadow of me, but it's a real personal identity of who he is, like who does he want to be? what does he believe in what does he like like i want to encourage that real kind of personal journey of him to kind of understand what he what he wants to be as as a as a young man. And it's what my parents, you know, really allowed me to do. And I think the more I can kind of stoke that fire, then it'll never be a problem if he'm having to live up to any of my expectations. Because my expectations are solely rooted in him being the best version of himself. So uh, what are you working on now? So we just uh, we just finished a sequel um, to Supersize Me. It only took 13 years, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very timely. Um, we just finished a sequel that just premiered at the Toronto Film Festival called Super Size Me Two Holy Chicken. That uh, takes a very different tack. You know, I didn't decide to destroy myself with my diet this time. It's, a, it's kind of from the other side of the register as uh, we kind of follow me opening my own fast food restaurant. Got so you, get, you kind of get to see the fast food world from a very different point of view. Interesting. And, yeah. All right. We'll uh, check it out. And people are going to love it. So it's going to be, you know, coming to, uh, coming to a theater near you very soon. Uh, there will be people
1: out there listening that are um, starting a business, uh, um, an entity or creatives out there yeah. pursuing their dream. What, what advice would you have um, to those
0: people? I think the biggest thing is you, can take, you should take as much risk as you can handle. That's the greatest advice I give anybody starting a business. Like, you need to take as much risk as you can personally, physically stand. And whether that's monetarily, whether that's emotional, and you should stay the course. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing is you have to believe in you before anybody else can believe in you. And you have to understand that path that you're on. And the minute you start to waver or falter is when things can fall apart. So I think you know the longer you can be true to you and that path and that vision, the more successful you can be. Well, Morgan, thanks uh, so much for joining us, man. Awesome seeing you. Great to see you as always.
1: Thanks to the Movember team, John Ackerman and Kirsty Wood, New Millennium Productions. Would also like to thank Morgan Spurlock and his team. Thanks to Martin Peralta for his production assistance. Dara Hirsch mixed this episode. Music featured in this episode is from Poddington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions and the Free Music Archive. The Movember podcast is produced and edited by Rose Reed. I'm your host Adam Gurney. Tune in for our next episode to hear more candid conversations about dealing and sometimes not dealing with life's challenges and changes. For more information about this show and the Movember Foundation, please visit movember.com forward slash podcast.
0: Do it better. Just do it again and do it better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Hold up.